3: Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. Even as we enjoy these last few weeks of summer, the fall harvest draws near, and it's sure to be bountiful. But at what cost to the farm workers who pick our fruits and vegetables? Years after low pay and harsh conditions made national news, the campaign to turn things around for farm workers still goes on. Mark Strassman will be reporting our Sunday Morning Cover Story.
4: For decades, the tomato farms of South Florida were infamous for their awful working conditions.
5: When we were first here, it was a very brutal community. Wage theft, sexual harassment, violence.
4: But with the help of some unlikely partners, there's something new growing in these fields. It's a completely different world. Progress for just a penny a pound, later on Sunday morning.
3: Rust and roots is a tour of an unusual resting place for classic cars. Tracy Smith will be our guide.
6: If a vintage car rusts in the forest, will anyone see it? Oh, yes, they will. And they'll take pictures. Is rust beautiful to you?
7: Oh, yeah. That's what I own, 34 acres of rust.
6: And it's gorgeous. (laughs) The car museum that is literally taking root in Georgia, ahead on Sunday morning.
3: Serena Altshul meets a pizza lover who thinks outside the box. Chip Reed finds family fun on the boardwalk. Steve Hartman follows a young boy who brings smiles to strangers' faces. Ahead, classic cars, untamed nature. I think it's a piece of art.
8: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: At what cost to farm workers do we Americans enjoy our fruits and vegetables? Are we willing to pay a little more at the checkout counter to better their lot? That's a question that's been on the national agenda for over half a century now, as Mark Strassman reports in our Sunday morning cover story. They are the migrants, workers in the sweatshops of the soil, the harvest of shame. In
4: 1960, CBS News broadcast Harvest of Shame, Edward R. Morrow's groundbreaking documentary, which exposed the conditions on farms in rural Florida, North Carolina, and New Jersey.
3: It has to do with the men, women, and children who harvest the crops in this country of ours, the best-fed nation on earth.
4: Millions of Americans saw, for the first time, third world squalor in America.
3: One farmer looked at this and said, we used to own our slaves, now we just rent them.
4: Americans were so horrified, Congress passed new labor laws, but little changed. America's farms kept producing harvests of shame, as Dan Rather reported from Florida in 1995.
3: These are still the forgotten people conditions for them are still awful
4: there are still about a million migrant farm workers in the US the population of towns like Immokalee Florida swells every winter when migrants and their families move here looking for work there's a lot of mistreatment uh, going on a lot of intimidation from the bosses and Gerardo Reyes a native of Mexico came to Immokalee to pick crops in 1999 Farms in Florida grow 90 percent of the tomatoes we eat in the winter. So pickers move from farm to farm and crop to crop with Mm -hmm. the seasons, but everybody knew that the tomatoes were the worst? Yeah, tomatoes is where most of the worst conditions are happening or were happening.
5: When we were first here, it was a very brutal
4: community. Labor activist Greg Asbed came to Immokalee in 1993.
5: There were wage theft, sexual harassment, violence. I mean, you would come out here on Friday in the evening for payday. You know, people would get their checks right outside the office. And uh, it was not uncommon to see somebody get beaten up by a boss. And their crime would usually be because they felt they got underpaid.
4: ASBED co-founded the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, or CIW. Its mission? Force fairness and workers' rights onto Florida's fields. For seven years, the CIW tried marches and strikes, but tomato farmers refused to talk to them. And then you changed tactics. Yes,
5: because you beat your head against the wall long enough and you decide that that hurts and you want to find another way to get around the wall. And if there is a way to get around it, you do.
4: In 2000, the CIW began pressuring the top of the tomato chain, fast food and grocery corporations, the buyers with clout. In 2005, Taco Bell became the first big buyer to sign on to the CIW's Fair Food program. Buyers agree to pay an extra penny per pound for tomato, money that goes to workers. And buyers only do business with participating Florida farmers. More than a dozen restaurant chains and retailers have signed on, including McDonald's, Chipotle, Trader Joe's, and last year, Walmart, which sells 20 percent of America's tomatoes. Walmart's joining was featured in the 2014 documentary, Food Chains.
9: We believe that by signing up to the Fair Food Program, that we can have a major
4: impact on the sustainability and the viability of the whole supply chain. And when Walmart, known as a tough labor negotiator, signed on, did that give you a whole new level of credibility and influence? It helped send the message
5: to the industry that, that this program is not going away, that it's only getting stronger.
4: Florida tomato growers got the message. 90 percent of Florida's tomatoes are now grown on Fair Food farms.
5: What'd you have out here, two crews today?
4: Farmer John S. Forms signed on first.
5: It was the right thing to do, quite frankly. I was asked when we first signed, why are you doing this now? And I said, because I didn't do it 10 years ago.
4: How long ago should it have happened?
5: You know, it should have happened 150 years ago.
4: The S-Farms family owns Pacific Tomato, which employs 1,500 people around Immokalee.
5: There was no question in my mind that bad things were happening in agriculture and on farms, um, not just my own, but farms across the country, things that I did not know about and had no mechanism to find out about. This gave me the tool.
4: That tool is the Fair Food Standards Council, an independent group that inspects participating farmers and holds them accountable. Along with a penny premium, growers must have zero tolerance for forced labor, child labor and sexual harassment. Other standards, such as mandated shade and mandatory worker training, go beyond what is legally required. We are enforcement obsessed Laura Safer Espinosa, a retired New York State Supreme Court Justice, heads up the Fair Food Standards Council.
10: We have, over four seasons, virtually eliminated the worst actors who were responsible for any kind of abuses of that type.
4: But challenges remain. Only a few supermarket chains have signed on to the program. For instance, Publix, Florida's largest, has not. In a statement, the company says it's not their place to get involved in the labor disputes of its suppliers. We expect our suppliers to follow the laws established to protect and promote a safe and healthful workplace for their employees. The company added, we believe all parties would be better served if appropriate wages were paid by growers to their workers and we were charged accordingly. But the CIW hopes that socially conscious consumers will look for this new logo. Some whole food stores now display them with Walmart and others soon joining. As a consumer, whether you're a
5: consumer who buys for his or her family, or you're a consumer who buys millions of pounds of tomatoes
4: every year, like the supermarkets, you have a choice to make. So far, that choice has generated almost $20 million for workers on participating farms. To a typical Florida tomato picker, it means an extra $60 to $80 a week. But nationally, more than half of all farm workers make less than $20,000 a year, and a quarter live below the federal poverty line. Matt Rogers is Whole Foods' produce coordinator. A relatively small impact on cost uh, can have a really large impact on the people who are doing this work on the farms. One of the big conversations right now with the folks who started the Fair Food Program is what's next. They've done an excellent job on tomatoes in Florida and it's a great model, and it shows great potential. So now, what's next? The program is expanding slowly. This summer, Fair Food auditors began visiting farms in five more states, and in November, they will begin visiting the fields of another big Florida export, bell peppers.
7: Aileen, do you ever think you'll be able to get out of this kind of work? No.
4: 55 years after Harvest of Shame, Gerardo Reyes sees something new growing in these fields. It's a completely different world when you think about agriculture um, and the way in which all of the abusive conditions happen in every crop, basically. um, When you see how this is working and why it is working, yeah, it gives us a lot of hope.
3: Just ahead, Step Lively,
8: To Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: And now, a page from our Sunday morning almanac August 9th, 1859, 156 years ago today. The day the patent for a prototype escalator called Revolving Stairs it was awarded to a man named Nathan Ames. No picture of Ames seems to exist, nor apparently was a single working model of his impractical triangle design ever built. It was left to others to take the next steps. In 1895, an inventor named Charles Seeburger was the first to use the term escalator, combining the Latin word scala for steps with elevatus for rise. In 1896, a different inventor, Jesse Reno, installed one of his designs in New York's Coney Island, where it was built as a kind of thrill ride. By the early 1900s, the Otis Elevator Company had acquired most of the escalator patents, and the moving staircase was quickly becoming a familiar sight in department stores and in other public places. Familiar enough, in fact, to win a comic role in Charlie Chaplin's 1916 film, The Floor Walker. Not that escalator design has stood still since then. Though a few of the earliest escalators with wooden steps still survive. Most escalators have long since adopted steps of metal. And early this century, Mitsubishi Electric turned heads by installing a spiral escalator at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. The escalator even made political history this past June, when Donald Trump rode one to enter the presidential race. With the escalator and its cousin, the moving sidewalk, ubiquitous at airports and train stations worldwide, a much-quoted ancient Chinese proverb is more true today than ever. A journey of a thousand miles and begin with just a single step
9: coming up this is real this is the world's largest usable pizza box one man
3: hundreds of pizza boxes
8: welcome to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it
3: A very devoted pizza lover is constantly thinking outside the box. Serena Altshul has been watching him in action.
10: Whether you like it with extra cheese, no anchovies, thin crust, or deep dish, America's crazy about pizza. On any given day, about one in eight Americans will be eating a delectable slice, or two, or three. But once the pie is gone, do you ever pay attention to the box?
9: This is what they call a paperboard box. It's a pretty soft cardboard box, but there's a big upgrade. When they have a large pizza, they use a corrugated box.
10: Most people toss their pizza boxes, but Scott Weiner
9: isn't most people. We're gonna hit up Lombardi's first, which originally opens in 1905
10: here. He's a pizza aficionado who gives tours of notable New York City pizzerias. Right now, I'm getting 637 Fahrenheit. While Wiener always craves a good pie, he's fanatical about the boxes. That's right, he collects pizza boxes.
9: How many boxes do you have now, you think? Right now, I have around 750, maybe a few more.
10: The whole closet devoted? Well, it's
9: not even the whole thing, it's just the top.
10: (laughs) Oh, so they're smushed flat.
9: Flatten, exactly. This is one, this is an Italian box. Right.
10: His collection has pizza boxes from 50 different countries.
9: Brand new, I just got this from Sweden.
10: Everywhere from Australia to Thailand to Kazakhstan. This is from Brazil. Right, I was going to say, that is not American-looking. And it's a circle. There are variations of familiar classics. And out-of-the-box boxes. A George Clooney look-alike, a jigsaw puzzle, a racy delivery girl, and a collectible limited edition. Point at the pizza box to play. Right. There's even a high-tech one that works with your iPad
9: so you can play a video game with your pizza box. This little city rises up from the box. Come on! And there's a pizzeria in the center and you have to protect it from zombies.
10: Wiener's, some might say, cheesy obsession started when he was traveling in Israel seven years
9: ago. When you're in a different country, you kind of expect, oh yeah, the money's different, language is different, different customs. But you don't expect to look on the wall of a pizzeria and to see this bright yellow box with blue writing on it totally rocked me.
10: Then he started collecting box after
9: box. Is that real? This is real. This is the world's largest usable pizza box. Pizza wasn't always transported
10: in boxes. Wiener says in the 1800s, metal vessels called stufas were used to carry around pizza in Naples, where pizza as we know it originated. In the late 19th century, pies made their way to America with the wave of Italian immigrants and they were wrapped in cheap newsprint or paper bags. It wasn't until the 1950s that pizza boxes were actually created. When we close
3: this box, we've made our best.
10: Domino's was said to be the first to design the corrugated box that was durable and kept cheese from sticking to the top. This is all pizza boxes. It's millions of pizza boxes. I mean, it's like 30 feet high. Yes. Bill Corinne is the president of Freeport Paper on Long Island, New York, which produces about 10 million pizza boxes a week and ships all
9: over the world.
10: What's the most popular design?
9: In the early years, it was always uh, an old fashioned pizza guy with a big mustache in front of the box. In more recent years, it kind of went into more of a cafe design.
10: So, which is more important, the pizza inside or the box? I love the box.
9: <laughs> You're a box guy. Exactly. The first thing you see that's what we, you know, is the box, and then you get to enjoy the pizza.
10: For less than 60 cents a box, pizza locations big and small are able to market themselves using graphics created by people like Holly Del Rey.
11: This is what it's kind of going to look like on the box.
10: The main designer at Freeport Paper, she's crafted over 10,000 different pizza box designs.
11: It's silly, but even when I'm driving around and I see them sticking out of garbage cans at the side of the curb, I'm like, there's my box. (laughs) So yeah, that makes me feel good, and I hope that people enjoy the product that's in the box and the outside of the box, too. Scott
10: Wiener sure does. He holds the Guinness World Record for the largest pizza box collection and has written a book about his passion. Do people ever say... He's nuts! What is he doing collecting pizza boxes?
9: Maybe not to my face, but I I know when I tell somebody that I collect pizza boxes, there's almost a moment where I have to take a deep breath and prepare myself for the look that I'm going to get.
10: Are you hungry for pizza
9: now? Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. Always. I haven't had a slice in a day. Ahead.
11: Never fear, this she shed is here.
3: A room of her own. and later, a stroll through the Forest Automotive.
8: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: Every so often, everyone feels the need to escape at least a little from the everyday, and that definitely includes contributor Faith
1: Saley.
11: Have you ever dreamt of a temporary retreat from your loved one's? to a cozy place where you could count your blessings and not have to listen to the dulcet din of your spouse reminding you that ceramic knives do not belong in the dishwasher and your kids fighting about who has the stinkiest feet? It sounds like you need a man cave. But what if you're not a man? Never fear, the she shed is here. Women all over this great land are creating spaces just for themselves, most often out of sheds in their backyards. They're Fantasy cottages, bespoke bungalows, mama maisons, if you will, for mothers and wives who need a sanctuary, a haven where they can do anything or nothing, a place to practice yoga or practice drinking wine in yoga pants. At least one woman says it saved her marriage. I have a she shed. Now, this is not an easy thing to achieve since I live in Manhattan and have no backyard. The four of us plus my husband's dog, share a two-bedroom apartment. Our daughter naps in a pack-and-play in the middle of our master bedroom, which is not big enough to have a middle. I'm writing a book, and there's not even space for a desk in our home. So I spent my hard-earned book money and rented the small apartment downstairs from us. As you can see, it's sparsely and perfectly decorated. There is some history to this trend. Personally, I was inspired by Virginia Woolf, who declared that in order to write, a woman must have a room of her own. I was less inspired by Marie Antoinette, who escaped her palace by ordering an entire hamlet to be built, where she could dress as a peasant and practice milking cows. Modern ladies have more to do than to eat cake. Marie Antoinette played a milkmaid out of ennui. Today's women need a break from all the roles they play. It's telling that even in my office-slash-refuge, there are toys everywhere because my kids appropriate the space when I'm not working-slash-hiding here. I like the connotation of a shed, whereas man-cave suggests something Neanderthal where a guy goes to reclaim his masculinity as if he's been tamed. Shed suggests a woman's shedding of burdensome trappings and expectations. A she-shed sheds light on the fact that even a woman, especially a woman, longs to escape the domestic sphere over which she historically, supposedly, reigns.
6: Cheers.
11: Man cave seems retrograde, but she-shed seems progressive. Or maybe it's just a place for me to eat embarrassing amounts of chocolate in private.
6: Mm. next. Do you have a problem with throwing things away, Dean?
7: Yeah. No, I don't throw
3: anything away. The road to ruins.
8: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: Rust and roots is our up-close look at what happens when vintage cars go back to nature. Tracy Smith leads us into the woods
6: in a forest an hour's drive north of atlanta an unusual museum has taken root
12: yes yeah, old car city old car city usa what do you think looking around this place
7: i think it's a 34 acre piece of art
6: 34 acre piece of art yeah it also happens to be something else a junkyard dean lewis is the owner and one could say the curator of Old Car City, USA, in White, Georgia.
7: I don't think anyone else has uh, 4,200
6: old American cars, 1972 and older. And if they do, no one keeps them in a garage quite like this. Detroit may have designed these rides, but Mother Nature has done all the detailing. Some cars have grown right up with the trees. Others have become two ton flower pots. This wild ride started in 1931 when Dean Lewis's parents bought a plot of land and opened a general store. No electricity, no paved
7: roads. Gas was 19 cents a gallon, apples, one cent each. Later, they bought an old junk car or two, sold parts, made another dollar in depression time. Several years later, I was born, you know, born in a junkyard.
6: When you were a kid, you played around in all the junk cars?
7: Oh, I have drove them a million miles, never move an inch.
6: After high school, Dean spent a few years saving up money working as a truck terminal manager. And then, one by one, he started picking up used cars, more than 4,000, and hauling them home so his parents could sell off their parts. For almost five decades, the Lewis family had the best car parts business around. But as many of their cars rusted and rotted and began to merge with the landscape, Dean had an epiphany. You had a vision of this place going from junkyard to museum?
7: Over 30 years ago, I told my son, daughter Jeff and Tracy, that this place would probably turn into a show place one day rather than a sales place, And and it has.
6: Now, hundreds of visitors a year pay $15 25 if they want to bring a camera, just to take in that strange organic harmony of rust and roots. I live in Detroit, and Detroit is the Motor City, and I thought what a great idea to come down and see what the cars look like from the 1950s. Melody Andrews is one of dozens of photographers who travel here every week from as far away as Thailand and Sweden. This is the absolute best place I have ever been to shoot. There's so much here to do, to see, to learn, and to smell. You can smell the oldness of the cars. There's history here. I would imagine every car has a story. This one in particular?
7: This one in particular because my dad in 1965 bought this car for my wife right after we got married. And she drove it for years, and has been here for 40 years. I saved it like I've saved every car I've ever had, never traded anything in.
6: All of the cars you've ever had are in this junkyard. Do you have a problem with throwing things away, Dean?
7: Yeah, no, I don't throw anything away.
6: While the cars are the stars here, you'll also find a lot of Dean Lewis and his unique sense of humor along the six miles of trails. Like wind chimes made of hubcaps and tailpipes. And Dean's best friends? They're also a part of this place, like his childhood buddy, Fast Eddie, who wrote a theme song for him called the Old Car City Blues.
3: Six miles of trails, full of history.
6: Of the thousands of cars here, Dean's restored about a half dozen. He says all the cars are technically for sale for the right price. But really, it's hard to imagine he'd let any of them drive off. What do you say to people who say you're letting history rot away?
7: Well, they're getting another life, you know, and uh, they'll be remembered by the pictures.
6: So he's preserving them in a living auto show for the ages. And if you ever decide to stop by, don't worry. There's plenty of parking. It's Old City.
3: Next.
8: See that man right there?
3: What one boy with a smile can do.
8: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: Is a warm smile the appropriate response to grief? Steve Hartman has met a young man who believes it is.
2: It is every kid's worst nightmare, and six-year-old Jaden Hayes has lived it. Twice. First, he lost his dad when he was four. Then last month, his mom died unexpectedly in her sleep.
12: I tried and I tried I tried to get her awake.
8: Couldn't.
2: Jaden is understandably heartbroken.
8: Anybody can die. Just anybody.
2: But there's another side to his grief, a side he first made public a few weeks ago when he told his aunt and now guardian, Barbara DeCola, that he was sick and tired of seeing everyone sad all the time and he had a plan to fix it.
11: And that was the beginning of it. That's where the adventure began.
2: (laughs) Jaden asked his Aunt Barbara to buy a bunch of little toys and bring them here to downtown Savannah, Georgia, near where he lives.
8: Thank you, sweetie. So he could then, want me to have it?
2: give them away. Thank you, man. What is it you're doing?
0: Well, I'm trying to make people smile. Rubber duckies, dinosaurs.
2: Because those are the things that make people smile. Yeah. And what happens to their face? Really? Really.
10: See that man
0: right there?
2: Jaden targets people who aren't already smiling and then turns their day around.
0: He made me smile.
2: He's gone out on four different occasions now, and he's always successful.
0: It's to make you smile.
2: Even if sometimes he doesn't get exactly the reaction he was hoping for. It is just so overwhelming to some people that a six-year-old orphan would give away a toy, expecting nothing in return except a smile. (gasps) Of course, he is paid handsomely in hugs. And his aunt says these reactions have done wonders for Jaden.
12: It's like sheer joy came out of this child.
11: And the more people that he made smile, the more this light shone.
2: Jaden says that's mostly true.
11: But I'm still saying that my mom
2: died. I bet you are. This is by no means a fix. But in the smiles he's made so far, nearly 500 at last count, Jaden has clearly found a purpose.
10: I'm counting on it to be thirty-three thousand. Thirty-three thousand?
0: Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big goal. hmm
2: You think he can make that goal? Oh, uh-huh. I think I can. I think he just did. is a great record. A visit
3: to Funland is just a hit.
8: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: Generations of people looking for summer fun have found it on the boardwalk. Chip Reed certainly has.
13: just wouldn't be summer for the Pentany family without a visit to Funland on the boardwalk in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. And it's been that way since Sarah Pentany, now 66, was a little girl. Your parents brought you, Yes.
6: Uh-huh.
13: you brought your children. Yes. Your children are bringing bring their children. children. Yes, uh-huh. Wow, <laughs> why do you keep coming here generation after generation?
6: Because it's a wonderful place to bring kids. It's just so family oriented.
13: A summer evening here, they say, is like taking a step back in time.
5: It's neat to see my kids riding the rides that I rode when I was a kid coming here.
13: Some of those rides, including the boats and the fire engines, have been at Funland since it opened 54 summers ago. And there's something else that makes this place feel old-fashioned.
8: Hi, what can I get for you? Can I just have one ticket? Absolutely, 35 cents. Thank you. Have
13: a good one. Where else can you get this much fun for 35 cents? All right, going up, they call it today's fun at yesterday's prices. We're going to go that way, bud.
7: We're going to walk out this way. Thank
13: you, Working honey. the rides most nights is Al Fosnacht. No, Thank he's not you. an employee.
7: Okay, here we go.
13: His family owns Funland. This summer, Twenty-three family members are working here full-time. Twenty-nine, if you include, the ride testers. How many of you are second generation? How many of you are third generation? Fourth generation? Fifth generation? (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Wow! Al's family bought the property in 1962, one week after a nor'easter nearly wiped out the entire boardwalk. What would become Funland was about the only thing left standing. Funland has been your life. It has. You're probably a little upset when you have to take a night off.
7: I sit upstairs and twiddle my thumbs and wish I was working.
13: Al, by the way, is 86 years young. You are retired, I understand. I've been retired for 25 years. And what do you do now? How many days a week do you come to work? Seven. Seven days a week. That's quite a retirement you've got there.
7: My friends at home say, you should stay home a summer. Let the kids run the business. I said you don't understand. The kids are running the business. Funland doesn't need me, I need Funland.
13: We spent an early morning watching the family get ready for another 16 hour day. They all know their jobs, restocking prizes, cleaning and maintaining the rides. But there's one job they save just for Al. How many of you are glad that Al gets up early in the morning and takes out the trash?
3: <laughs>
13: <laughs> yes, Al, who's supposed to be the boss, volunteers to take out the trash every morning.
7: When you have no talent, you get what's left. And and my job security is fast. Unbelievable. Nobody wants a job.
13: <laughs> Nobody wants to do what exactly. you do. What's your favorite job?
12: Crushing up boxes.
13: Crushing up boxes? Yeah. <laughs> Before the park opens, four-year-old Jay Curry and his cousins have the run of the place. And when the doors come up, it's fun for everyone. What are you proudest of in all this?
7: Our family, the, the fact that we've been able to work together all these years.
13: There's, there's gotta be a secret.
7: Love, love is a secret.
3: Ahead, days of remembrance.
8: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: Today marks the 70th anniversary of America's wartime nuclear bombing of Nagasaki, Japan. It was a follow-up to the dropping of the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima three days before. Designed to spare American combat deaths, the bombings did leave lasting scars on both cities. Seth Doan. Files in the Sunday Morning Journal.
12: In Nagasaki today, a solemn ceremony marked the 70th anniversary. While on Thursday, paper lanterns carrying messages of peace were floated in front of the iconic Hiroshima Dome, which stands as a reminder of the power of America's bomb. Even 70 years later, when you close your eyes, do you remember that day? Do you think about that day? Yes. I cannot forget. Keiko Ogura was just eight years old when the bomb was dropped a mile and a half from her home. Most of Japan's major cities had already been bombed, and many in Hiroshima had a feeling they were going to be next.
9: And my father said, something will happen soon. And uh, that morning, he said, today, it will happen. You stay home, he said. Then I didn't go to school because of that. I was
12: near my house. You think that saved your life? Yes, of course. On this nondescript side street, this marks the spot where directly overhead, the atomic bomb was exploded. Nearly everyone in this area died in an instant. At the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum, a model shows the giant fireball that engulfed the city. The heat from the explosion reached as high as 7,000 degrees. Up to 80,000 people were killed instantly. Everyday items were incinerated. A school lunchbox and a tricycle a child had been riding just feet from ground zero. Kenji Shiga is the museum director. What should a visitor take away today?
4: We want people
12: to understand how inhumane nuclear weapons are, he told us. Ogura remembers survivors looking like ghosts.
9: We shouldn't repeat the evil. This is the reason why we continuously tell our story. It is said, rest in peace for we shall not repeat the evil.
12: She tells us this inscription on a memorial in the center of the city is a reminder for her. Tell her story with the hope this chapter of history will never be repeated.
3: I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning.
0: Till then, I'll see you on the radio. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.